Hi, welcome to Changemakers in Autism. You might notice today that my co-host, Jen Faust, is taking a much-needed and well-deserved break, and I'm joined by Dr. David Wilson, who is the director of Reed's Intensive Behavior Services Program. David. Yes, I am not Jen Faust. Uh, <laughs> thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to this. This will be great. Great. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your background, a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a doctorate level behavior analyst. I got my graduate degree at the University of Florida under the direction of Brian Awada. Uh, I've worked in the field of developmental disabilities, behavior analysis, serving individuals with autism, really a child to adult uh, for over 25 years. Translation, David is very, very smart, knows lots of things about behavior analysis, and we are thrilled to have him on the show today. Thank you. We are joined today by Dr. Dorothea Lerman. She's a licensed behavior analyst and a board-certified behavior analyst. Dr. Lerman currently is a professor of Behavior Analysis at the University of Houston, Clear Lake, where she chairs the master's program in behavior analysis and serves as the director of UHCL, Center for Autism and Developmental Disabilities. I hope you don't mind me cutting that short. I feel I would take the whole podcast to cover your achievements, your accolades, and so forth. So with that, welcome. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm very, very happy to be here. Maybe you can give us um, a little bit more of a broad background. Um, you can kind of fill in the gaps in that in that bio that David just shared. Sure. Well, I received my both my undergraduate and my graduate degrees from the University of Florida, specializing in behavior analysis. And in graduate school, uh, the specific area of training was in the assessment and treatment of severe problem behavior in individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And coincidentally, they were all adults. Um, After I graduated, my first academic position was in a school psychology program at Louisiana State University. And so there, at that point, I started working in the schools, working with younger folks. And I was there for seven years. And when I transitioned to the University of Houston Clear Lake, Uh, We started getting a lot of calls from the community about individuals who had graduated from high school, individuals with autism had graduated from high school, and they were really having difficulty making that transition to adulthood. And a lot of people refer to this as a service cliff where they get a lot of support, you know, up until they graduate from high school. And then at that point, a lot of the services just disappear, and there were individuals, we were being told there were individuals who were getting college degrees, um, but they were just sitting at home mm-hmm. afterwards, not really doing anything, having a lot of trouble getting jobs, keeping jobs, and also some, we were also hearing about individuals who were going to college and were having a lot of struggles, and so in looking at the, the, the data out there, we were discovering very low graduation rates for individuals with autism, very low employment rates for individuals with autism. And so that's where we decided we really needed to start focusing more on that population in addition to the, our programs for the younger kids. 
I feel like you're really speaking our language. There's just so many um, overlapping uh, features of of your bio and your work that are important to us at Reed as well. The this this um, you know post twenty one void um, in terms of. Uh, workforce opportunity for our adults with autism that have terrific skills and abilities and still can't kind of make that connection to, you know, gainful employment. And obviously, uh, severe problem behavior is um, is uh, something that's close to David's heart. So we're, we're really, um, we're really very happy to, to learn more about about what you do. Um, so your research, of course, has has spanned several decades and, and many topics. And tell us a little bit about what you're working on currently? Sure. Well, um, so one area, and, and, and I want to return to the, the vocational and that kind of thing, but, but one, our newest area is working with non-behavioral professionals to help them provide their own services more effectively with individuals with autism and other developmental disabilities. So we have trained police officers, we uh, are now currently working with two large medical schools to train medical students, current medical professionals, as well as dental professionals. And because if you talk with families of individuals with autism, they will describe the challenges that their, their family members have when they do interact with these service providers. But just going back to this transition to adulthood, um, as I said, you know, I got my, my initial training in the area of assessment and treatment of problem behavior, and I actually used that approach when I was looking at job skills. So one, one thing that I was hearing over and over again was it's not the, the responsibilities necessarily of the specific job. These individuals could do that and could learn those skills very quickly. It was their social skills, their job-related social mm-hmm. skills, such as asking for help when needed, responding appropriately to corrective feedback, and so on. And so I took that idea, that sort of that approach to assessment of problem behavior, and I applied that to the assessment of job-related social skills because there was nothing out there that involved directly assessing those skills. It was all questionnaires and rating scales, which we know as behavior analysts doesn't always correlate to actual behavior when you're in that situation. And so we set up in our clinic to sort of recreate those work-related situations within an authentic work environment. So we're, we're creating it, but we, we tried to make it as authentic as possible. And then we would set up those situations. David? Yeah, that, that's something I've always been interested in. I, I've certainly read that research. Can, can you describe a little more about what these settings look like and how you put them together to be authentic? Sure. So, you know, it is a clinic setting. So, but we have within our clinic an area where there are three different rooms and they're all adjacent to the same observation room. So we can be be sort of almost like behind the scenes where we're observing them. They can't necessarily see us. And we have one set up to be a workroom, one set up to be the supervisor's office, and one to set uh, set up as a break room. And then in the workroom, we bring in a lot of 
work materials that might be very similar to the types of tasks that they will do on entry-level positions. Um, but we also have a computer where we can, can give them also more advanced types of tasks. And so, you know, on the job, a supervisor isn't necessarily going to be looking over your shoulder, right? The supervisor's busy, they're going to go off and they're going to do other things. And so we set it up where we show them, here's a supervisor's office, and in the workroom, there's a supply cabinet as well. And we let them know, if, you know, if you ever need anything during while you're working, here's where the supervisor will be, here's where some additional supplies will be. And then as we give them these, these jobs to do, we purposefully set it up uh, where they're going to need to do something, right? So they may need to, they may run out of materials. So we want to see, do they look in the supply cabinet first? If it's not there, do they then go to the supervisor's office? Do they, do they appropriately explain the problem and ask for help? Um, we might give them unclear instructions for a task that could be done multiple ways. So if you're asked to roll silverware into napkins, but it's the first time you're doing it for the supervisor, there's different ways to do that. And so the appropriate thing to do is to say, you know, I'm not sure exactly how you would like me to do that. Can you show me or tell me how to do that? Uh, we might give them a task we know that they probably don't know how to do. And so the appropriate thing would be to explain that to a supervisor and ask for help. Um, and sometimes we give them multiple tasks and we ask them to do it in a specific order or sequence. We want to see if they can do that. Um, and so we're looking at all of those things. And yes, it's a clinic setting, but we do try to present it as these are tasks that need to be done. This is work here that we need done. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure if you're if you're aware, um, but at Reed we have a an indoor hydroponic vertical farm uh, called Greens Do Good, and um, what started off as a as a work site specifically for our adult. Um, clients and residents sort of morphed into uh, a workforce development opportunity for teens in that, you know, 16 to, you know, upwards of 21 range looking for, um, you know, job training and experiences. And so we've met people at the farm that we've, you know, not had an opportunity to serve in the past. And one of the, um, one of the takeaways was the importance of helping um, helping the participants understand self-advocacy and yeah. how to navigate um, things that, so where we found stumbling blocks were when somebody felt that they were ready for a, a, a task of increasing um, uh, complexity and uh, maybe the farm manager who is who is a, a farmer, you know, he is he is not um, you know a behavior analyst. He is charged with working, um, you know, running a working farm, and maybe he doesn't think that that person is ready, and so that doesn't necessarily manifest itself as. I want to do this really important job. I want you to train me. Sometimes it manifests as um, challenging behavior or some kind of outburst. And um, so that's been a really, I'm, I'm just so interested in the self-advocacy piece. I think it's not intuitive for, for many young people to know how to advocate for themselves, whether we're talking about neurotypical, neurodiverse, it's a very hard skill to develop. And so um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how you 
how you sort of draw that out in in people through your assessment and training. That is a great point. That is a really great point. And I and I do have to say that specific situation where you're teaching someone to advocate for more responsibility or for a, a different job, we have not tackled. Uh, it where self advocacy comes in is requesting certain accommodations okay. or um, you know letting people know that they have a disability, which you know, we always let them know the pros and potential cons of that when you're, you know, interviewing for a job, whether you disclose that or not. And and we certainly make that um, up to them. Where we really focus a lot more on self-advocacy at this time is through our Connecting to College program, which is a program where we provide supports to college students with autism. And what we have found is that, um, a lot of the college students, there are resources to help them at these universities, but they're not asking for that help. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. that's how college is. You, you're not just going to get they're not they're not just going to give you that help. Even in the even if they know you have autism, they're not going to say, "Here you go. Here's the help you need." You have to request it, even accommodations, right? Even academic accommodations. Yeah. So a lot of people don't realize you go to the Office of Disability Services, you request these accommodations, the disability services will grant you some, they'll let your faculty know that they have done that, but the student has to actually ask for those accommodations. They actually have to go to the professor and say, I want that extended time on the next test, or I want a copy of your notes, right? And so that's a big thing that we work on is teaching students to advocate for what they need. And they often don't know what they need. So Mm -hmm. we've created actually like this little checklist where they go through and they think about their situation. They think about what's happening in their life and it helps them figure out what kind of help do I need? So I think that self-advocacy is so important. So I had seen that that talk about the, the supporting college students. How do the students come to you? So you, you are doing assessment and intervention. It's research-based. How, how are they finding you? So our Connecting to College program is, is not a research program. So with that, we are, we are fully embedded within our university's resources for all students. And so when a student goes, for example, to disability services and discloses they have autism or related needs, they'll, they'll say, hey, we have this program called Connecting to College. We also work with our state vocational rehabilitation system mm-hmm. because they support college students. And so we have a contract with them. Well, they, well they, they will support those services as well. And so we just try to get the word out. So a lot of parents hear about the program and then specifically have their child apply to our university because of our Connecting to College program. But we actually will serve other students at other universities too. So we do serve some students who are receiving, um, who are attending community, local community colleges. So that's how they hear about us. Um, and then we, you know, we meet with the student and we let them know what we're all about. We focus very heavily on self-management, teaching self-management skills. And if they're interested, they can they can be a part of our program. If they're not interested, then then they then they 
they aren't a part of it. And what does the teaching look like? How do you go about increasing these skills or developing the skills in the students? Yeah, we use traditional behavioral skills training, just like any we do with anyone. And so we all talk about how to select goals, how to monitor your goals, how to arrange your own reinforcement. um, And we practice that. Um, Some of this, so that's for self-management. But let's say we're teaching a student, a student, and the students set their own goals. And let's say a student wants to set a goal of asking their professors for help when they need it. So we'll go through the instructions about how you do that. We give them a task analysis and then we role play, right? And so we do traditional behavioral skills training for just about everything we do. Wow. And certainly I know you have graduate students, undergraduates. How many people are working in the lab to help support the, the students? Right now, our Connecting to College program has three graduate students. They each are working 20 hours a week. And so we're serving about 15 college students right now. Wow. Fantastic. Can I back up a little bit and ask you some more questions about your your first responder training? I think that that is, again, an area that we've identified here locally. Um, it's It's a huge weight on the minds of parents. Um, we've seen examples of things working really well, and we've seen examples of a response that was, you know, less than desirable. And, and something that, you know, we've observed is a difficulty in, um, kind of pushing into those organizations and saying, you know, we can provide the training for you. We want to do this for our community. Um, obviously, here in New Jersey, we have the second highest prevalence rate of autism in the country. So this is this is the place where where those opportunities should be encouraged. And sometimes we run into roadblocks. So how have you generated these relationships and been able to you know create partnerships where the the dialogue was well received and the training was appreciated? That's a great question. This all started when one of my graduate students, Carly Hinkle, in her very first year, she read this article about this this young man with autism who was in the park minding his own business and someone called the police because he thought he looked suspicious. And within five minutes of the cop getting there, that that young man was already down on the ground Uh. with a a fractured leg and... And so she said she that's that she wanted to do that as um, her research project for a program, and so it didn't happen to anyone else. And so Houston is pretty big, mm-hmm. and so not only do we have the huge Houston Police Department, but we have small surrounding areas. And so she just started contacting them, and Houston, the big one, was the only one that responded. They had a very good mental health training team, and that training team. I think was already very interested in incorporating. They hadn't done any autism training. And so they, they were primed and ready to go. And so when Carly approached them about doing it as part of research, they very wisely said, no, why don't you intern with us first? You know, and she was only just starting her graduate program. So she had time. And that was so smart because that allowed, so she developed, she was embedded within the mental health training team and because all of the police officers had to get annual training and then all of the cadets got a five-day training. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so they, she was embedded within them. She created a presentation about autism and how to, how to work with individuals with autism out on, on a call. And that really helped her learn a lot about the police, what they're trained already to do to make sure she, you have to be consistent, right? Sure. You have to fit in with what they're doing, with what they're being taught to do already. And it really gave her credibility, right? It really helped her mm-hmm. credibility. And so even like she would do these PowerPoints and they would tell her, you know, oh, those aren't the terminologies we use. Here's here's our terminology. And it really, really helped establish her credibility so that when then she said, okay, I want to do my research now. You know, I've been with you for a year doing your mm-hmm. trainings for you. You know, they felt like they couldn't tell her no. And but it also helped improve her training and in in kind of doing a deep dive in looking at what typically has gone wrong, you know, when police encounter individuals with autism in the field. One big thing that was clear was they rush in too quickly. They do not they were not distinguishing between what we call problematic behavior and dangerous behavior. So they told her from the beginning, if someone is engaging in dangerous behavior, the police have to do what they're trained to do to keep Mm -hmm. people safe. You can't tell them to do something differently. But what we could see very clearly in the examples in the social, you know, in the media is that police officers weren't good at distinguishing between I'm just throwing a tantrum or I'm engaging Mm -hmm. in stereotypy versus I have a weapon. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt myself. And so that was a big part of the training. And then just to slow them down. So we had these steps, step by step. Here's what you do when you, you are out on a call and you think someone's acting strangely and might have autism or mm-hmm. something related to autism. You just proceed very slowly. Right. Yeah, I can see so that. Gave being them step by step. It is. Do this, do this, do this, do this. But really the entire purpose of it was if they followed those steps, it mean it meant mm-hmm. that they were proceeding very slowly. They were uh, presenting instructions in a way to hopefully increase the likelihood of compliance. And that if there was problematic behavior, they would back away and wait for the person to calm down before doing anything. So, Basically, in summary, step one is infiltration of the police department, right? You got you have an, have to have an inside woman, right? Uh, who's who's getting in there? That's that's actually really, really, isn't that the truth with anything, right? You have to understand right. both sides to put together the most. Um, but I love that approach. We've um, we have uh, we have group homes in communities all around, you know, Bergen County, and one of the things that we've done in those communities. Uh, as a step in the right direction, though I love the idea of training and giving people a little bit of a, almost like a decision tree to work through um, when potentially encountering, um, you know, an adult with autism on a call, you know, we invite the police department to come into the home and we give them a tour. Um, we, we try to connect with the community liaison um, t- to put faces with, you know, with the residents that are living in the community, um, let them kind of know what types of behaviors are 
expected to be seen in that particular residence with those particular clients. And it's really been helpful for us because inevitably there's a call, right? Either the fire department's going to show up or the police department's going to show up. And the first time it happened in one of our new communities, the the person responding to the call happened to be the community liaison rep who had been with us a week before. And he said, oh, I know you guys and no worries. We'll take care of this. It's, you know, he, he was... He just had a familiarity with with what we were doing there and the residents that um, that I think is really important. But I love I love the training and, and just you know equipping people with tools to understand the difference between a behavior that needs to be you know sort of curbed immediately or one that can be de-escalated with just a little bit of extra time. Well, your your strategy to invite them is so excellent. It, that that is so wonderful. And that was sort of one of the limitations of our training was that we did not use any anyone with autism in the training. So they would role play mm-hmm. with someone who was pretending to have autism, right? Would love to be able to do it where they're actually interacting with people with autism. Yeah. Yeah, that might be important. That's great. I think I'm hearing more and more about this topic around the country. People, you know, in in certain pockets, major metropolitan areas, making an effort to educate and, you know, work collaboratively with, you know, not just not just police, but as you said, also the medical field as well. I think that that's, um, uh, you know, those are some critical touch points that will just continue to evolve over over time. Yeah. One thing that we wanted, so most of the trainings, you're right, a lot of a lot of people are, there's a growing awareness of the issue. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of training programs for frontline first responders, police officers. And, but most of those trainings are very didactic. And so mm-hmm. one thing that Carly, what, what I think is so exciting about Carly's research is that she had two groups of police, of cadets, one who got a little bit of role play in the training and one who one group that just got the didactic. And in her post-test role play, she showed that the ones that had some of the, got some hands-on training did much better. And we did that. We weren't, we were expecting that, but mm-hmm. we did that because we actually wanted to show the police academies how important that hands-on role play is when you're training police officers. I love that you're getting to the cadets, too. I mean, that's the prime time to really impress upon that group of future, you know, first responders, the importance of, you know, these steps. And that's very wise. I'm, I think that's terrific. I'd love to be able to replicate something like that here um, in, in our community as well. Yeah, I think another area that that I'm seeing more and more of is uh, emergency rooms, because a lot of individuals mm-hmm. with autism, if they're in crisis, they end up in an emergency room. What do the folks there do? Um, so I know some some local groups have some advocacy in that area, uh, but definitely certainly something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I had you know I hadn't gotten to there. Uh, right now we're we're gearing up for a very large project where we're going to be training 200 medical students in an hour. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Using hands on, <laughs> right? So. We're going to break them into small groups and hopefully recruit a, a bunch of facilitators and train a bunch of facilitators because we know how important that hands-on is. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is just some things you can do during routine medical exams, wellness exams. I really am intrigued by your your comment about the emergency room doctors. I think that that's, gonna, that's real important. 
Yeah. So you're describing this hands-on approach, and and obviously you know, a couple hundred um, medical students seems challenging. If you had to think about scaling that up, how how would how could you do that? Well, so here's what we're going to do. So 200 medical students, we're going to break them into groups of 10, and prior to us doing this, so we're actually not going to do this, we're going to do this in April. Um, But prior to that, we're going to run a study where we're going to look at how many role plays do you need? What's the minimum? So what we learned with our cadet study is each of those cadets only got one chance at the role play. But what they did is they watched their fellow cadets and took procedural integrity data on their fellow cadets. And all right, so that sort of taps into another research literature that shows that your own ability to implement something can be improved by watching other people do it and and scoring whether or not they're doing it correctly. And so we're going to take that same approach, but what we're so we're going to have these ten, and each person will get a, a turn. And if it's not your turn, you're attending to what someone else is doing and indicating whether or not they're doing it correctly. But we don't really know how many role plays are needed to acquire the skill. And so we're going to test that in a, in a research project before then. I'm hoping it's just one. <laughs> like that would make your case a little bit easier. Yeah. <laughs> because if you're, if you're in a group of 10, so you do it once, but you watch nine other people, then hopefully that's 10 you know, times that you can get that information. And then hopefully in a test right afterwards in role play, you'll, you'll do well. And, you know, we're trying to get a set of procedures that a, a medical pro, uh, healthcare professional could use, and it may not be effective with all of their patients, right? Some are going to be need more intensive desensitization or tolerance training, but at least hopefully with a portion of their patients, right? And so it's things that a doctor could easily do within the context of a routine medical exam, such as finding out what their high preferred items are and making sure they have continuous access to those as a sort of a way to distract them from what's going on, um, providing frequent breaks, lots of praise for cooperation with the doctor. And so we're hoping that this will be fairly simple uh, for them to learn how to do. We'll see. <laughs> I could talk to you all day. I think everything you're doing is so interesting and relevant oh, to, you. you know, to what what we're just seeing so often. Um, I think we we do want to spend a little bit of time on the on the topic of teaching, uh, assessing and teaching adults with autism to teach children with autism. Um, yeah. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. So that's a line of research that we did um, a number of years ago. We aren't currently doing that line of research, but we did quite a number of studies and was it was just such neat it, it was really neat fun things uh, project to do and so one one idea that we had was okay so individuals with autism are having trouble um, obtaining and maintaining employment and we were working with some individuals with autism who expressed a real interest in learning how to work with kids with autism and we thought you know how neat would that be for them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so 
what we wanted to do was simply use our typical behavioral skills training to teach them how to work with kids with autism, specifically behavior analytic intervention, right? How to, for them to apply that as well, teaching kids to do things, teaching kids new skills. And so we did an initial study and, um, you know, it was a, quite a success, we felt. Uh, we followed up with a study where we were looking at other types of behavior analytic strategies, so not just very structured teaching, but could they work, you know, how, how well was it working with kids in a more naturalistic situation? And that worked, that went really well. And another study that we did was building rapport. So how, how well did they build rapport with kids they were working with? And as a result of working with the kids and teaching them how to build rapport, could we see um, that rapport in action? So did the kids approach and seem like they really wanted to uh, hang out with our therapists more so after they build rapport than before? And we saw that. It was, that was a really neat study. Um, and then in the last study we did, we looked at things like um, how could uh, therapists with autism improve their own skills through things like self-monitoring, self so taking data on their own behavior to see how well they were following protocols and things like that. And that sort of concluded that line of research. Um, some of the individuals that we worked with did end up getting employed by ABA clinics and right. I believe yeah. some of them are still employed by ABA clinics working with kids with autism. That's fantastic. So it, was, it was a it was a really fun fun project. So so I know you you worked on very specific skills. You mentioned sort of discrete trial teaching. Um, did you do anything to to look at or assess like not not necessarily soft skills, but I guess thinking about what what parents of children that are being served by these adults with autism. How, how they might perceive the the individual that's a great that's a great question we did have some social what we call social validity ratings but those were people who uh, were, were professionals in the field so they rated the therapist we didn't tell them the therapist had autism and we just had them rate their soft skills and their hard mm -hmm. skills before and after the training but we did look at more qualitative aspects of their therapy. So, you know, the quality of the praise they were delivering and things like that and provided additional training when we suspected that there were some qualitative limitations to what they were doing. So even the, the tone with which they were delivering instructions and things like that. But yeah, getting parents involved, I think that would have been great too. So what's we've talked other than training hundreds of medical professionals in <laughs> in record time? Um, what's next on the horizon for you? What are you looking at in the in the near or distant future? That some questions you'd like to answer through your research? Well, I, I would really so our connecting to college program. We've uh, uh, you know we haven't actually done. Uh, prepared the data in a, and collected data in a way that's, that's for research purposes, for dissemination purposes. So we would really like to do that going forward so that we can share with the community our outcomes, which are very good. 
Um, we have been talking with some donors about the possibility of expanding our vocational program beyond the interventions that we provide. We have not done any job placement mm -hmm. and um, these donors would like us to do that because that is a problem. And so what I'm hoping is in the future, we will also be looking at finding jobs for individuals, placing them in, in a, think, you know, jobs that are a good match for their skills and providing support that they need to be successful on the job. So I see us growing in that area as well. We're so aligned with you on that. That's really, you know, particularly at our farm, uh, that's where we're at in the in the process, which is that we feel like we have a, a really good training ground. Um, individuals get an opportunity to handle all aspects of farming, you know, planting, harvesting, packaging, sometimes delivering. So they have this really well-rounded skill set. And we know that the next step is to connect them, you know, with other environmentally sustainable programs in the community yeah. and support them um, in, in those organizations. So that's, when you crack that code, can you please give us the the secret? Um, because uh, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing too. It's yeah, it's challenging. And you know, Rutgers University has a really neat program, and so I'm hoping to partner with them. Uh, we we've talked a little bit about replicating their model. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is although that although we do all of our work in a clinic setting, we have described and done a little bit with some partners in real work settings. So at your farm, there's no reason why you couldn't set up situations to look at those job-related social skills, because if you have to wait for it to happen naturally, those opportunities to happen naturally, it may just, it's inefficient. It may take a while mm -hmm. or it may never happen, right? If mm -hmm. everyone's very good at giving clear instructions, you may never see what happens if you give unclear instructions. And so one, one way to help with disseminating this model, and here I am, can I plug something? <laughs> sure, go for it. Right. So I have a, I have a book coming out. Rutledge oh, is publishing it. It's um, on their website. It says it's coming out in April of 2023. At least that's what they're advertising. Okay. And this is specifically aimed to educators, job coaches, vocational specialists, as well as behavior analysts describing how they can do the assessment and our intervention model within the context of a variety of different settings. So they could be actually in the community working on an actual job, or they could be in a training setting, or they could be in a school setting, in a public school setting where they're getting vocational training. And so we described this model. And so I just wanted to, to let your listeners aware of that as well. Yeah, the, the, the book is on my list. And uh, I, I think replicating some of your work at the farm is something we've definitely talked about already. What's the title of the book? Did, did we say the title? So it's Neuro, Neurodevelopmental Disabilities and Employment, Helping okay. Learners Prepare for the Social Demands of the Workplace. Terrific. Yes. David's particularly interested yeah. in that area. So thank you. April. So I, I guess, um, so I don't know, maybe a last question of sorts. Um, I imagine a lot of your graduate students will go on to continue to work in adult services. I, I think I found in, in my time working with the population, there aren't a lot of behavior analysts who sort of pursue that line of work. Can you think of anything that maybe behavior analysis can do in general to encourage more practitioners in that area? You know, I think 
one of the issues and one of the reasons why you're not seeing as many people working in that area is because of funding, right? I think that's, that's really a big part of it. And because a lot of, a lot of the funding cuts off when Mm -hmm. someone gets into adulthood. And so, you know, that's a lot of that's going to be related to public policy and things like that. But there certainly are some places that are serving adults um, for example, the Virginia Autism Institute, uh, several of my former students have gone on and are working with them. And specifically because of the work that they did with us in the vocational program. So I think, I, I think one of the keys is getting more funding for that, for those services, for adult services. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but I think, you know, the more research we can do and put it out there, the more dissemination we can provide for our models and what we're doing and just getting the word out that way. And I do think that universities need to be training students to, to work with that population. There's a very, as you know, there's a real, real emphasis on early intervention and early Mm -hmm. intervention is so important but there are a number of folks who don't get early invention, intervention, or they might, but they still are going to need that assistance transitioning to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we share that perspective about the importance of, of having that education available. Uh, well, you're certainly a change maker, and we're so grateful that you were willing to take some time with us today. One thing we like to ask our guests sometimes is, who are the change makers out there that you think we should be talking to? Is there someone on your list that's really doing interesting work that we should feature on this podcast? Oh, there's so many people. So I don't know if you've talked with Stephanie Hood. We've been, she's done some fantastic work. Have you, have you had Stephanie Hood on your? No. Okay. So she's, she's doing some fantastic work on uh, social and conversation skills with adults with autism and in fact, we're currently collaborating on some projects. And I just, I really admire what she does. I think it's it's really neat. Yeah, I think I just saw she was awarded a, a pretty significant grant. Oh, was she? I didn't I know that. So, yeah. Okay, wonderful. Um, the And I mentioned Rutgers earlier. And so, for example, Sung Wu Khan and Robert LaRue is, mm-hmm. they're doing some really neat things with adults at Rutgers University in in the vocational area. Um, There's so many folks who are doing, um, Flo de Janeiro-Reed is doing really exceptional work looking at training supervisory skills. So, Mm. you know, when you're training people, um, it's very important how you're supervising them. So she's doing a lot of work in that area, I think, that is really cutting edge and really neat and so needed. And so few people are are looking at that. So I think that uh, I would recommend her as well. Fantastic. Those well, are the names so. that come to mind at the moment. Yeah, I think we could get Sungwoo and, and Robert Lever. Yeah, I would, sure. I would like to think so. Um, well, if you ever find yourself in New Jersey, we would love to sit across a real table as opposed to a virtual one from you and, and talk to you a little bit more. But thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoy talking about this stuff.
Thanks for listening to Changemakers in Autism. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Read Autism Services. Like, follow, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts.